Welcome to Work Everywhere, a podcast brought to you by Allware, the company that equips teams with everything they need to work from anywhere. I'm your host, Ben Kessler, Chief Growth Officer, and my co-host today is Veronica Kellerman, Content Marketing Lead. In this episode, we're joined by Joseph Ifiegu, co-founder and CEO of Equitable, a platform for people analytics that's gathering buzz among HR and people teams. Prior to starting his own company, Joseph's entrepreneurial spirit and strong work ethic took him everywhere from the soccer field to data science and people analytics roles at Snap and WeWork, and eventually landed him and his Equitable co-founders in Y Combinator. In today's conversation, we chat about the importance of developing process in early stage startups, how teams can properly leverage data, his advice for budding founders and entrepreneurs, why hybrid work is here to stay, and how leaders can effectively lead their teams while working distributed. All right, Joseph, we are so excited to have you here today. Thanks for taking the time. I wanted to... uh, ask you to just jump right in and, you know, introduce yourself uh, to the listeners and tell us a little bit more about your career journey and, and what led you to your current role. Thanks for having me, Ben and Veronica. So I'm Joseph. I am one of the co-founders and CEO of Equitable. And, you know, the the journey towards being the company has been an interesting one, for sure. You know, I started on my career as a data scientist. So in terms of education, I have, I have a degree in math, statistics. And really just work as a data scientist. And really, when I started out, the goal for me was around, I was like, hey, look, I want to become a, some sort of like, you know, chief data officer kind of thing, right? Chief data, chief analytics officer. So that was the goal. And so worked in different domains, worked in healthcare, worked in sports analytics, retail, e-commerce, um, research. And about, I think it's about seven years ago now, I like to say I, I mistakenly... <laughs> got into the HR analytics space. Um, at the time, I was I was working at Toys R Us as a data scientist. I was looking to make the move at the time. And I saw that, you know, I was looking online and I saw this role, people analytics at WeWork at a company called WeWork at the time. I didn't know what really what people analytics was or even what WeWork was at the time. Because this was, this was talking about, this was 20, I think it was early 2017, somewhere there. And so I started to, I was like, oh, so I researched more into people analytics learned more about it. I was like, oh, this is very interesting, right? Using there to really influence decisions in the workplace. And yeah, read more about WeWork. I was like, oh, this looks very interesting. So it's a new concept, unique. And so really just applied and it's lucky to just get the job, right? And I think in getting that opportunity, it really now led to other things, right? So joined, I was the first upon the legs person on the team. Three years later, you know, I had an 18 person team the company that we work at grown from like just under 2,000 to over 15,000 employees in three years. So a lot happened in that time. And I learned so much about people analytics. And so, yeah, so that was actually the entry point to building, eventually building the company in the HR analytics space. But it started out with just like, hey, what is this people analytics role? <laughs> and, and then through, you know, a few years later now, seven years down the line, it's like, I'm, I have, we have built a company in this space. Awesome. So you've worked at a really interesting range of companies, which you kind of just hinted at. So you've been at Arsenal, you've been at WeWork, you've been at Snap. And like you just mentioned, you also transitioned from a kind of traditional data science role into a people analytics role. So can you tell us more about what that transition was like and how you were kind of led to specialize in this more niche area of analytics? Yeah, I I think, you know, I played... So I played sports in, in college. So I was 
actually came to the US on a sports scholarship. And so a soccer scholarship um, to be specific. And so working in a place like Arsenal, whereby I studied statistics and, you know, for, for sports, it was a dream for me because it was like two things that I really loved, numbers and, and soccer. So, so that for me was a dream job for sure. I had a great time just working on the game from that angle. And then, you know, at Toys, it was really great because, you know, with e-commerce, the good thing about e-commerce is like there's so much data, like consumer data, right? You're, you're trying to understand consumer behaviors. And so I really enjoy working with that volume. But you, you'll start to see this sort of idea in terms of how people make decisions. What, you know, you could, to, to a degree, to, it got to a place where we could actually predict how people shop, right? Like if, if someone, someone that bought something like, you know, bottles were you know, for, for baby bottles were, were more likely to buy baby pacifiers or bib, right? You start to understand like, you know, like kind of just almost this idea of like, like this market basket analysis and understanding kind of those behaviors. And so for me, when I saw people in analytics and I started to understand, okay, well, for me, it was like, oh, wow, this is interesting. Like there are certain things that you can start to understand about how people make decisions within an organization. So that for me sounded very interesting. And so it was pure curiosity and an opportunity to do something. I didn't quite know, to be honest, like, you know, Looking back at it now, it's like, wow, it's been an, an amazing process, but I didn't quite know what to expect, right? My thing was, let me just get into this organization. This looks really cool. Oh, this looks like a challenge for me and let's do it. And so I guess for me, it was a thing about, well, how different can we be from sports and analytics or, 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 or e-commerce, right? Because it's numbers just been applied. Statistics just been applied to a very different domain. Of course, there are certain differences. And so I had to learn the domain during that time. But like, yeah, it was just something that over time, I just got to learn more about the domain, applied certain concepts that were pretty much the same. And to some degree, I think it was a good thing that I didn't come from a traditional HR background because I was able to really challenge a lot of norms um, that were there at the time, bring very unique viewpoints in terms of solving problems as well. So yeah, so that's kind of how I would say, I, I didn't really know what the future was going to hold in getting to this domain, but I learned a lot along the journey and it's, it's really been amazing. So on that journey, I mean, tell us a little bit about, you know, what brought you, obviously being in a, a data and analytics role, you were always, no matter what, it's, it sounds like you were kind of in the digital function of businesses and thinking about the data that, you know, implications of data in the business. How did that bring you to entrepreneurship? Like what was the, you know, you'd worked in these roles, there, there's this very uncharted, but almost seeming like, it's interesting the way you talk about it, it you know, in hindsight, it seems like it was this natural like career progression, you know what I mean? But as you were experiencing it, it was trial and error and, uh, you know, taking risks, I guess, you know, that's how you were seeing it as you were going. But how did you get to entrepreneurship? Like, were you, have you in your past been an entrepreneurial person? Are you inherently like an entrepreneurial person? Because I think the reason I say that is I think a lot of people miss that, you know, working at a startup, taking a risk at a startup like a WeWork, or even within businesses, larger businesses, whether it's an arsenal or whatever it might be, you know, a, a corporate enterprise, there's still functionally like entrepreneurship that's happening in terms of like how you're approaching projects and things like that. So I want to hear a little bit about that. Like, tell us about your sort of your, your history of entrepreneurship and how you got to ultimately founding your own company. Yeah, no, for sure. I think obviously that there's same things that you plan, but you know, I think sometimes I think some, some founders want to you know, they, they tell their story and it, it sounds like this sort of, oh, I knew all along, I have everything planned yeah. and it's like mythical. <laughs> and so for me, I I just want to like really just strip that. I said, it was and like, oh, it's <laughs> right, just like, right. 
it's just like a controlled stumbling down the hill. It's like what I want to call it, right? But no, really, I think I've, I've always wanted to start a company. So I've known as, as far back as when I was 17 that I wanted to build something. What it was, I did not know. But I liked the idea of that, partly because my, my dad is an entrepreneur. So, you know, my whole life, my dad never worked a normal job. He had his own business. He had actually a couple of businesses. And we grew up um, around that. So he was a consultant that companies called to to fix things if the company wasn't doing well. So he would come in for a set period of time and help restructure the organization. And he had, he had different things. He had an important export business. He had So these are things that I grew up seeing. And, and I think to a large degree, I took a lot of those traits from him because for me, from the beginning, from as far as, 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 as far back as I can remember, I've always been a problem solver. I like to solve problems. I like to take on challenges. I think the very nature of me coming to the U.S. by myself, without my family, by myself, um, it's a risk in its own, right? Not even knowing what the future would hold. And so there's a lot of things over time that I just take in risks. And so, you know, you take enough, you know, I left home at 11 to go to boarding school, right? <laughs> far away from home. And so it's just all these things across, over time in my life that I was just, I was already very independent at 11, 12. I've always known how to take risks and deal with the consequences of taking risks. So I think you do that over time. You just feel this resilience and this appetite for just taking risks and just seeing where things go. So I think that's where that came from. And so I think in, once I graduated under my undergrad, I started a, actually started a business. Um, I started a company. And at the time, it, it, it filled in the first year, probably because just not the right team, didn't have the right sort of experience that I needed to run the company. And so got a job, <laughs> kept building my skill sets, kept learning about how the world works, about how businesses work, uh, what is required to be successful and so on. And so after my time at WeWork, I had the tools, I would say, that I needed to be able to start a business. But it was during my time at WeWork that I that the idea of equitable popped in my mind and I had a conversation with my now co-founder, one of my now co-founders gave. And we were both like, yeah, this would work. Like we had this idea. But I needed to have actually done the work because in building the, the, the team from scratch, building the infrastructure from scratch and learning so much about the domain, I started to work. First of all, I built expertise. But second of all, I started to see like areas of development whereby in the space, in the domain, I was like, hey, I built XYZ at WeWork. When I look out in the industry, I see... ABC. I see there's a gap here and I feel like we can build something here. And as someone that's always going to build something, I was like, you know what? We know enough to know that there is a, an opportunity. And if we don't take this opportunity right now, I don't know if we have to do it in like two, three, four years time. And that was really what we just did. We just hopped on it. And again, like I said, the risk of that was already, we, we already knew how to take risks, right? I've already been taking risks my whole life. So I was like, you know what? Like, if it feels like I'll get another job, right? <laughs> What's the worst that could happen? Like, oh, we'll get another job. It's fine. And, you know, I was lucky, you know, lucky enough to have built like a good, you know, like savings. So you have at least a little bit to just say, hey, if I feel like at least I can do this for six months, see how things work. And if that doesn't work, I can always go back and get a job. So that's kind of what I did. Um, and, you know, lucky enough, almost two, two and a half years later, we're, we're still here. So that's pretty exciting. I think you answered this, but I just wanted to add like a little bit, you know, for people listening to this, I think there will definitely be people that have the entrepreneurial bug or, or bone in their body. But, you know, a lot of it is HR and IT teams and businesses. I, I got a decent amount of like how you went and jumped, but any advice from you on making that making that leap to actually go and and chase that, <laughs> chase that thing. I mean, the things I heard from you was like one, you know, obviously like logical things like having some kind of cushion right because you're not going to make a dollar yeah. on day one so having some kind of cushion <laughs> yeah. if possible 
and seeing an opportunity on something that you truly believe there's an opportunity and there's not, there's maybe a gap in the market, but, but anything else that would be like advice for someone that's been mulling over this idea of, of entrepreneurship or like taking the risk. Yeah. And I think just to, to recap, I think one of the things that I, I found, at least for me, was the fact that I built something that came off an experience that I had in a space that I knew a lot about, right? I think I've seen a few entrepreneurs sit down with friends and just, oh, what about this idea? What about this idea? Now, it's possible that you can just brainstorm with a couple of friends in a domain that you don't know about and still build a company. It's, it's, it's possible. I mean, there are people that are brilliant, right? But I found that building in a space that I had intimate knowledge about was very powerful, not only for just being able to anticipate problems, but also even for fundraising too, because one of the things that pieces will ask you, why you? Is <laughs> the thing, is a very, like they ask, why you, right? And so I think it's important to have a level of experience or at least have maybe a co-founder that does have a level of experience, but one of the founding members needs to have a level of experience and want something that they're building. I think the second thing is, honestly, it's, it's really starting small because I think a lot of times people think, you know, okay, we'll just build this company overnight like that, which is successful. And it's really the case. I mean, however, it starts with like, what, for example, when we started to build Equitable, we, we were doing nights and weekends. I was still at WeWork. And I started the just first lines of code. And this was nights and weekends, not using company laptop, not like, you know, you do all the, you have to make sure you have all the right, you know, do all the things the right way. So every, anything that has to do with your work, you keep that away separately. My home, my work, my, my home laptop, I did that at home after hours and I just worked on it slowly and I decided to test it out. So tested it out with, and then I, we ended up actually getting one customer that paid us money. It wasn't a lot of money. It was like $5,000, but they paid us money to use this crappy product that we built. But that was it. So we're like, okay, if someone can pay us for this, then we thought, okay, there is something here. And so what I encourage is like, hey, if you can't take that nights and weekends, if you don't have that enough passion to dedicate even some of your free time to doing this, then there's a chance that what makes you think that you'll be able to quit your job to do this full time, right? So you need to kind of be able to dedicate that time to do it. So that's the second thing. And the third thing is, if possible, I know, I know it's not always possible. I know there's a lot of people that live paycheck to paycheck, but if possible, it's being able to have some sort of savings or cushion. Because there's some people that are lucky enough they have um, a spouse that is doing well that can support or, or parents or a good support system, right? But that is not the reality for most people. Most people, they have to kind of figure it out on their own. And so if you can, I think, to make sure that you are safe, <laughs> so you're not kicked out of, you can't pay rent and things like that, I think it's important to have some sort of, you know, three, six months and say, okay, look, I'm trying for this time. If I don't see any sort of progress, then I'll, I'll go back, right? Um, I think that's important. And so that, that really helped myself and my co-founders to really just say, you know what, let's pursue this because we at least were lucky enough to have done that over the last couple of years and have that like sort of savings and things to fall back on. So those are things I would say that are really practical. Try those three steps, I would say, if you're looking to start a company. Yeah, and I think I think people miss those practical things. I think too many, you know, the basic one of you can do this if you are really passionate about this. And I like how you said it of, if you can't find that time nights and you know, you don't need to quit your job right away, but if you can't find that time nights and weekends, like that's already a good indicator that you might, you might be ready for this thing. And I think we're away from a culture of like, you know, working 60, 70, 80 hour weeks, like continuously, but that's unfortunately like the truth in the beginning of these things, right? Like you do have to be prepared to 
to work in an unorthodox manner, I think. And um, yeah, so I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if it was easy, everyone would do it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. That's the reason. That's the reason why not everyone does it. It is hard. I mean, I think, you know, people look at the, uh, I guess, 30 on 30 lists or TechCrunch fundraising announcements or Forbes, all those things. And, oh my gosh, this is cool. You're on this thing or you're on this magazine or you're on this. And like, oh, the glamorous parts, but not realizing the flip side, like we are banging our heads against the wall. <laughs> every day just like what is happening like you know it is hard <laughs> right you get mostly no's it's actually the life of an entrepreneur is mostly no's and then just like jumping for joy when you get that one yes <laughs> right so it's a constant rejection but but that's what it is and so i think people need to just be prepared for that like it's yeah it's not as uh, glamorous as people would think but it's so rewarding when when it works out it's like the best feeling ever and that's something i just also want to add to that as well <laughs> So tell us more about the kind of genesis of Equitable. So you told us you're, you know, working on this project nights and weekends. Where did you go from there and how were you kind of led to where you are today? Yeah. So one night after work, myself and, and, and my co-founder gave, one of my co-founders gave, uh, we had a drink. Uh, we just started talking about it. He said, just, I, I want to start a company. I want to do something after this. I don't know if I want to go to another job after this. I was like, me, me, you, man, me. I, <laughs> we've been th- I've been thinking about this, this, this idea, right? And we just started to talk about it. And the idea was, was around the fact that there are a lot of HR systems out there right now. And, and that's fine. I think the space needs innovation, no doubt about it. But what we're starting to see was, because if you take a step back, like if you look at 15 years ago in an organization to use a HR tool, like you had, you had one tool for everything. Like you might have had like, you know, like ADP or something, right? And use that for payroll, for benefits, <laughs> for your core HR, for hire, use that for pretty much everything. And as time went on, right, you know, you, the work days of the world and they start to see things, you know, companies like Greenhouse, Lattice, Culture Amp. Like all, you know, Bamboo HR, all these companies come out of nowhere, right? And build a, a platform that does this one thing really well. And so you went from like an integrated system to this disintegration whereby you had different data sources that did different things really well. However, there became a new problem, which was, well, we have all these data sources to do all these different things. However, if I'm trying to do reporting on all of this data, I have to now figure out a way to integrate back all the systems into one place, right? And so I'm like, well, the number of systems are going to keep multiplying, but the ways to integrate the systems into back into one place to tell a very cohesive story, it's going to be something that people need because when we built Equitable, um, when we built we, uh, Team at WeWork, I literally had that problem. We literally had that problem. And we had to build a team and build all that infrastructure internally. And we spent a lot of money. We spent like $2 million doing all that. Right? So we spent a lot of money doing that. So I said, okay, well, what if there's a way we can build a system that just integrated all these HR systems, brought that data all together into one place and delivered, made it very easy to understand your metrics, collaborate and do all of that stuff for not an expensive amount, like for very, you know, for a fraction of the cost that it took us to build this. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> and so that's kind of what the idea really was. We started to talk about that. Well, we, we, we got to that place because for us, we cared about fairness in the workplace. We cared about making data-driven decisions. And we felt a lot of times companies make decisions that are based off of like some sort of anecdote or that are really biased and it's not data-driven. And because it's not data-driven, it isn't fair. Uh, Michael Fonagay, he cares so much about fairness. And, and I do too. 
But I just love his passion about that too. And, and we talked about that. And so we said, okay, if we want companies to make data-driven decisions, we have to make that, the barrier to entry very, very low, very, very low. And so how can we create a system like this that does this? And so that was kind of what it was. And so we, we had that first conversation, I would say like maybe a couple months later, COVID happened. And so everyone's trying to figure out their lives. I mean, like, what's happening? Like, you know, we don't know if what's going to happen, all that stuff. And then one of the days he was, you know, we were living in New York at the time. Uh, he was an upper west side, I was an upper east side. And we were like, hey, let's meet in Central Park. Just walk in Central Park and just like see each other because it's been like, it's been months. And so this was summer, summer of 2020. And we just had that walk in Central Park. And that's the famous work we always refer to in any of our conversations because we sat down and we just crafted this idea of equitable right there in Central Park. And then we just started working on it. We, we continued to work on it. And then a few months later, we applied to Y Combinator. And then by December, January, we got into Y Combinator and the rest is history. So that was really how we, how we went about it. Do you want to talk a little bit about the, you know, from that point, so Y Combinator to now, like the trials and tribulations? And, and, you know, we don't have to get super detailed, but maybe a little bit about how the product or service was kind of first came together and, and what you guys have learned and what it's become. And I think... You know, the question I want to get to is how does, you know, sort of pitching the idea of equitable, like how does centralized people analytics create, you know, what's the end goal? How does it create a more engaged and inclusive workplace? Or, you know, what what does it really enable teams, the people that are listening to this this podcast who might use the service, what does it enable them to do? So when we got into into YC, I mean that was YC was I think was really crucial for us. It was incredible because I did not have any experience in that VC world, fundraising, all of that. And we understand that, you know, you need, you need money <laughs> to make money. And so, but a few things that YC did for us, I think beyond the fundraising thing, I think YC really enabled us to really iterate. They taught us how to iterate. So ship things that are not complete, <laughs> that, that you deem like that are not perfect, get feedback and just do that over and over again. Um, I think that, and that was really amazing because I am a perfectionist. I, I'll say I was. Right? I think after years of shipping incomplete product, I, I've just thrown that away. You know, you can't let perfect be enemy of good. So I think that was the one thing that YCB in the three months that we were just part of the batch of winter 21. We just iterated products, helped us move very fast. They really pushed us. We're like, hey, building of this, of this feature or whatever would take us two months. And they're like, yeah, two weeks. And we come back in a week, you're like, you should be done in two days. <laughs> so, so they really pushed us to move fast. And then we figured out ways to really just move fast and ship things that are not complete. And so by the end of, you know, we had the three months in YC. Uh, by the end of that, we, we, we set to fundraise. And that was great. It, you know, it showed us a lot about how to fundraise, introductions to investors and all of, the, all of that good stuff. And so through YC, we were able to raise $3 million dollars. In our seed fund, in our seed round, and that not really gave us a lot of now, you know, firepower to really get in, you know, some really founding members of the team and start to really build out the product. The first year for us was really about building the right foundations because we understood that for you to do analytics appropriately, you need to have the right integrations. And so the first year was really about building all those all the integrations. Right, so we we just built that. Uh, we had some uh, some cost, some really good names join us in that first year. Towards the end of that first year, when we went to market with the first, with the like V one of the product, and that was really crucial, right, for us because now we had like some really good names buy our product and then give us a lot of feedback. So we just took feedback, like we had like two three customers at that time for the first year, just for most of the first year, 
And that feedback was really what helped us build the rest of the product. Uh, build the product that was really powerful and really strong and really helped the other customers that came on later on. I think year two for us was starting to really now scale. There were a lot of things along the journey that we had to deal with, right? One of the biggest things was really trying to understand your market because you come to, you know, when you build as a as a founder, you, you come to the table building and you can't you have an idea as to what people want. I don't think anyone knows. <laughs> you have an idea. But once you start to sell the product, oh my gosh, it's such a humbling experience. Because you we're like, you know, we're experts at this. We know this. Here's what we we're selling. People are like, that's not what I need. <laughs> they were like, uh-oh. <laughs> right wait what like i thought we had this you know and so being able to really listen and get i mean i i've had in terms of customer conversations over the last two and a half years easily easily over 500 conversations i wouldn't say more like 800 i would say i mean because last time i was trying to count <laughs> what it was like coming but it's like yeah it was around 800 like it's gonna go to a thousand in like by the end of the year right so but but things we had all we i spoke to everyone that i knew in my network, in like, we had so many conversations. And then we got to understand that what we were building wasn't quite, like we were a bit, we were a bit off. And then we adjusted the product to fit that. And we just kept getting a lot of that constant feedback. So I think the biggest things were just having an idea. And then that was very, well, that was very much challenged. But also the second thing I would say was being able to go to market because you can have a great product, but if no one knows about you, then that doesn't work. Something we learned very early, I would say was, if you have a good product, but not a good go-to-market strategy, right? No one is going to buy because no one knows about you. You have a great go-to-market strategy, but crappy products, people will buy it at first, right? And then people are going to churn. So how do you kind of balance the two as well? And so that's something that we, we learned, especially last year, trying to understand how to go to market um, as well. So we had all these challenges, but again, in summary, all in all, I think it was about being adaptable, uh, being humble and get feedback from your customers, from potential customers. Why didn't you buy the product? Okay, here's the things that we need to do better. And we just kept evolving and, and iterating and, and, and which led us to where we are today. So how can a small business or a startup that only has a very small HR team and maybe doesn't have the budget or frankly, even the need for like a large enterprise level platform, how can they still utilize people analytics and how can something like Equitable still be helpful for them? Yeah, I think and people analytics is using data to make decisions about your people. That's it, right? At a stage, you know, you're a 40% company, you're a 50% company, you, you don't necessarily need equitable. I know it sounds crazy. I'm like, oh, because you actually say people should buy us, buy us. But no, you can just do what you need to do with, with Excel at first, right? Like if you're a small team, uh, it's really about tracking and using the data that you get from that to make decisions, right? Because you can't change what you don't measure. Right. So for you to change something, you got to measure it. And so it's actually just measurement. So if you don't even have a way to measure, my first advice would be develop the processes early on to measure. Right. So when it comes to if it's your diversity metrics, if it's your hiring metrics, how long does it take you to hire? What are your attrition metrics look like? What is your tenure? Engagement metrics. Why are people staying? Why are they leaving? So you can get tools or even use things like Excel to track certain things, right? Even if, if you're small, right? But there are tools that help you at the early stage as a startup, right? There's a little PEO tools and there's things like that. But so it starts with that. So just develop the processes. And then as you, you as you start to track, you build the muscle for tracking and then build the muscle for making decisions with that data. So that when you get to 200, 250, 500 person company, 1000 person company, 
And then you're in a place where you want to use a system, a process, a, a tool like Equitable, then you've already created the foundations for that. So I'll just say, uh, that's what I would just say. I think start with just tracking, develop the muscle for that, and use that to make decisions initially. And then over time, it will just become second nature for your organization as well. I said this a little bit earlier, but I feel like HR tech is booming, like especially over the past, you know, five years or so. And the amount of tools that people are using and being pitched HR teams, it's grown, you know, exponentially. What what do you think from what you've seen in all these conversations you've had? What do you think the problems are that people teams are experiencing still? And, you know, how does bringing all of that data together, you know, integrating all of that together in one place help solve these problems they're facing? Yeah, I mean, we're in a data era, right? <laughs> data is key, data is the, is the one, right? But I think with all the systems, again, which, you know, we need innovation, more parts of every, everyone building um, in the space. I think it's I think it's fantastic. But I think with the, with the amount of data that is, there's, we actually have a lot of data. And I think oftentimes when I talk to executives, talk to CDOs or CHROs or chief talent officers, one of the things is, is like there's just a lot of data and they don't quite know what to do with it. And so one of the biggest things is not just about, okay, here's another platform, here's another dashboard, but what then? It's kind of, it's almost like the and what, okay? I have this dashboard, I have this data. And what? Like, what do I do with this? And so one of the things that I saw that a lot of, um, executives and decision makers are doing with it's just that there's still even with the amount of data there isn't a clear path to decision making and so one of the things at equitable we've started to really do is saying okay well of course you know there's a lot of systems so we've built that integrations like i said earlier so we built integrations to get that data in we've structured that so you can have it can be clean and then we've given you an interface to be able to create and understand those metrics in a very simple way right simplicity but the next thing is like okay we have seen these, 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 these sort of issues or these sort of hot spots within your organization. Here are certain recommendations for what to do. So pointing out potential issues and even giving guidance in terms of how companies should make decisions as well. So that's something that they're looking for. And that's something that we're starting to do now with organizations because having the data is not enough. Yes, you can even integrate it because that's I think that's very important. That's actually core, right? You can integrate the data, you can get the data, you can make it simple. However, if you don't give the path to decision making, it just ends up being another like data point that they see. And so that's something that we saw a lot of companies struggle with. And that's something I think as a whole in the industry, we need more of. Not just showing the data, but also giving them that guidance in terms of decision making when it comes to their people based off of that data as well. Do you think the rise of kind of hybrid distributed remote work has created more need for this data like more visibility and are there new data points because i mean i assume there must be new data points because of that but you know it's a conversation that we're constantly part of is productivity more existential things like culture and you know engagement of, of team members but I'm, I'm assuming these things maybe i'm answering my own question but I'm assuming that the change in work has made teams even more hyper aware of like collecting data from people that they're not face to face with all the time. Is that true? Do you, do you see changes there? Yeah, no, for sure. And I'm sure you I mean, you all have some incredible data um, on, that, on that as well. I mean, right? Like, yes, I mean, definitely it's changed, right? It, it used to be like when it was all purely office, right? Like people, people make decisions about promotions because 
you know, I like John. He's a good lad, right? Like we, we have good conversations in the office, right? Uh, but when it's now hybrid, then, right? Like you have to actually go, you have to actually look at actual output data. It, it becomes different. It's not about John being a good lad, right? There's more tangible things that you have to measure now. And so, and then there's more tools that have come up in terms of trying to measure productivity and what that even means. Um, and so, because the way we work has changed, naturally, the way we measure has to change as well. And what we measure actually has to change as well. So there's been definitely new data points. Things like network effects are actually even more important now, right? And then even being able to measure engagement. How do you measure engagement now? It's very different, right? Because we're not all in the office. What does, what does engagement mean now? <laughs> it's very different. Is it, is it someone I just like, their little button is green all the time. Are they engaged? Because you can just literally move your mouse if you're tracking stuff like that. I don't know, right? <laughs> right. So what does that mean, right? So I think naturally, I think those things have changed. But I think to some degree, it's a good thing because I don't think being in the office all the time is necessarily, I don't think that's a measure of productivity. Persons there all the time, persons at their desk. I think naturally, yeah, it has changed. But I think that has led to new innovations in terms of how we measure what we measure. Uh, what the different definitions are uh, when it comes to engagement, productivity, and even culture, right? People have come, what does culture actually mean? What did it mean before? What does it mean now for you? And so being able to measure those things kind of now would lead to basically different ways of working in the future because companies are going to start defining what that means for them and then coming up with ways to have culture, to have engagement. If it means like meeting once a quarter with a team and playing games or I don't know whatever that means. But I think, I think, yes, there has been a massive shift in terms of how we measure things, for sure. So to kind of shift the conversation to how you handle this with your own team, as a leader, how do you approach the employee experience at a remote-first company like Equitable? And what are your tips for other leaders in the same situation? And I'm curious about your response because you both work in this space and you're really truly an expert in this space so how do you kind of apply that to your own team i know it sounds maybe it might sound like a very vanilla answer but i think it's and mind you like we're a small team so obviously I, I i can appreciate the more you grow the more you know there's more complexities right and more accommodations that maybe people you have to make but the answer is really talk to your team that's <laughs> just i mean it's like get feedback because I think oftentimes, you know, it's easy to just say, hey, look, I'm the CEO or whatever. I'm the executive. I'm going to make this decision. However, that's not, I don't think that's, I think good leaders listen, take feedback, and then incorporate that into decisions. I think that's just, that's just like a sign of leadership. I think everyone should just do that. And so for us, when we started the company, um, you know, we're like, hey, do we want to get an office? Like, what, the, <laughs> what does this look like? And, you know, speaking, when we started to bring people into our team, we had our first our head of data, Jen. And she was just like, no, I, I really am not really comfortable. Uh, based on everything that's happened, you know, stuff like that. I want to work remote. You know, my co-founders, you know, we had co- my other co-founder was in, in Chicago, right? Like, how is this going to work, right? So from a talent perspective, from a safety perspective, from just personal, you know, lives, we, we just said, okay, it makes sense for us to work remote, right? Like, it just naturally just made sense. But that's also enabled us to actually get incredible talent, right? Our our head of content and marketing, Jalade, he was in Nigeria, and then he moved to the he's, he's now in the UK. But I wouldn't have been able to get a talent. Like, he is incredible. You should go, go on our website, go on go on LinkedIn, see our content. He does all that work. He, like, he's like a 10-person team. And he does all that work, right? He's incredible. But I wouldn't have been able to get some, a talent like that if we were just saying, hey, the person has to be in New York, right? And so just in terms of talent and conversation, we just say it made more sense from getting the right talent 
for accommodating the team for us to be remote. But then what does that mean for us for engagement and culture? It meant that we have to figure out ways to really get everyone together. So one of the things that we do without failings, every Monday we have an all, all company. And the all company is not really, we talk about work towards the tail end of it. What we do is really check in. How was your weekend? And we just talk for 45 minutes to an hour. Talk about weekends, talk about kids, family, all that stuff. Just catching up. How people are feeling, questions that come up. And those things were really, and I, I just had to do it. And then now it's a part of thing. Like it's a part of the culture. Like if, you know, there have been times where Monday was a holiday. And then we came back and we didn't talk for just Tuesday. And people were like, dude, what's happening? We need to kind of get together and talk. Like people, people miss that kind of that community, that sort of that community, right? And then for us, then we, we also utilize different things. I mean, we are very, I think, because of the fact that we had to work remotely, communication becomes even more important as well, right? And you, you have to be very thoughtful in terms of the words that you use. And so for us, like when we, if we go back and forth more than two or three times, we hop on a, we do a huddle in Slack. We jump on a call. So if I say something, my co-founder responds, and I say something again, then we're like, okay, it's the third time, like, huddle. And we just get on the, and we just talk about it, right? Because we don't want anything to be lost in translation as well. So we, we just developed ways to really communicate more often because we are not there in person. And then finally, we try and meet up, you know, three times a year. So we do like, you know, we just meet up for like, um, the last time we met up, we, we played like, indoor golf <laughs> and, uh, you know we 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 had dinner together and it was really nice um so so we try and meet up and just as a team and then to maintain that as well so that's kind of what i would say i, I would say to any any leader just talk with your team if it's going to be hybrid figure out ways if you're working more remote then when you get together as a team figure out ways to kind of do like some sort of team building activities communicate more with the team over communicate because you're no more in, you're not in person so that way you can remove any sort of misinterpretation of any kind of thing. I think that really helps as well. So that's kind of what I would say. As an extension of that, and we, we ask all of our guests this question, talk a little bit more about yourself. Like what is your work style? How do you like to work? And and also where do you see, you know, we just talked about how you're, you'd manage a team and it's remote, but we've had this big shift in work culture and work logistics over the past two or three years. Like how do you see it continuing to change over the next, you know, one, five, ten years? How I work, I mean, I, I'm pretty adaptable, right? <laughs> like, I can I can work, you know, like, but, I mean, typically, I, so funny thing is, I'm actually an evening, like, nights, I work in the evening better, right? So, like, once thing, it starts getting dark, on my brain, like, in the morning, I'm pretty much useless in the morning. I'm just pretty much, I, it's, it's like, I just respond to emails, paperwork, like, just different things like that. Like, any kind of deep work, I don't do during the day. I, it's pretty much, and so I work better at night. And so once it gets to like five, six, and then I start working, I work to maybe one in the morning. And then, so that's kind of really how I work. And so for me, but I understand like people work differently. So I, I'm pretty much adaptive. I can work with anyone. Like if you will have you work and I just adapt to that and figure out ways to work with you. So that's kind of how I, how I work typically. I'm a very much like, let's just on a call kind of person. Like, right, like it's easier because I feel like, because I can just talk through things. And so it's not unusual. Like I, we do huddles few times of the day just like hey this happened oh huddle and we just chat so i like to just talk through things hash it out and things like that um and so that's really how i work but in terms of just really the change i mean yes we like you said we've had a shift i think over the next you know one five ten years this hybrid like the hybrid work i, I think is really going to continue um but i think i think more and more one of the things that i've I, that I, I see is you're gonna we i think there's going to be more of an autonomy in terms of how people work and what I mean by that is over time, I feel like there's going to be sort of this more gig sort of workers because now 
just because of the you know technology and the flexibility that that gives us. So more and more, you will see people that say, "Hey, look, I don't necessarily belong to, I don't necessarily like work for a particular company, but I offer a service, and so I can work for you know Allware as a, I'm a, I can do content for Allware. I'll do content for Equitable. Uh, so, <laughs> and so that's kind of what. People, so you're gonna see more and more of those sort of like micro entrepreneurs come up as well because now they're gonna be offering their the incredible services to. Because now it's like I don't need to be in person to, to deliver this incredible service. My output is going to be judged off of a particular set of goals. And these are the goals that you want. I deliver that. That's what I'm judged off of, and that's what I'm paid off of. So you're going to see a bit more of that sort of um, move towards sort of this micro entrepreneurship slash more of the economy. I mean, you're seeing that already, but it's going to be more of that as well. I think you're going to obviously have certain people that's going to be like, "Hey, everyone has to be in the office." I mean, you're going to always have that. <laughs> um, however, I think you know to really compete on a global scale. I mean. If you, for example, I'm, and I'm originally from Nigeria, right? <laughs> I saw some executives say on Twitter the other day, it was like, oh my gosh, what is in the water in Nigeria? Because the UI UX designers coming out of that continent isn't out of Nigeria. It's incredible. So imagine if you said every UI UX person on your team has to be from New York. And then you have this incredible talent in Nigeria. And then you have all these companies saying, nope, you don't have to be in New York. I'm going to hire from Nigeria. Then, they, then you have some of the best designers in the world coming out of this country. What happens? You can't compete with that, right? So again, I, so I think more and more because of this sort of global village that we've seen due to technology, you're going to have more and more of like sort of the barriers broken um, and see more and more of that like interworkings between countries and, and how companies work uh, in terms of them getting talent as well. So I think you're going to see more of that. So I, I think the hybrid thing is here to stay. How it will evolve will be very interesting to see, but I think it is here to stay. And I think more of those gatherings in the future will be more around more of team building and getting to know each other as opposed to maybe more of working as well. So last thing I'll say, it would be interesting to see really how people that are graduating now work. Because when, when we started our careers, we, we built relationships in person. Like I'm, you know, I like the in-person relationship whereby, you know, I had a good relationship with my, my boss because we, we chatted in person. And then, and then they even helped my career grow. They gave me really good advice in person. And so I'm interested to see really how, because right now what happens is when you get on a call with your, your manager is really about work, work, work. Just talk about work. Okay, we have to do X, Y, Z. And so there's less patience for like this like conversation and relationship building. So I think there's that effect of relationship building in the future. I'm, and I'm curious to see how, I don't know, how people will solve for that. I don't have an answer to that, but I feel like if we don't think about that, I think the next generation is going to suffer in terms of building the relationships and, and that advice. Because a lot of the advice they gave me really helped me. Like a lot of advice that my manager gave me really helped me in my career. And I, I feel like, yeah, I feel like we have to figure out ways to kind of do the same thing for the next generation. Otherwise, they're going to suffer for that. So that's the one thing I would say in terms of this advantage that we have to think about for the future as well. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It makes me feel good too that Veronica, uh, our calls are a good percentage of talking about <laughs> things besides work. <laughs> Yeah. Ben, ben and I have a good 50-50 mix of talking about food versus talking about work. That's fantastic. That's <laughs> food, fantastic. Food and pop culture, I guess. Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> it's it's totally great. That's awesome. Well, Joseph, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been so great to have you. And please tell our audience where they can find you and where they can um, learn more about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so... Thanks for everyone listening. So I'm Joseph Ifiegu. I am, again, one of the co-founders and CEO of Equitable. 
Equitable is E-Q-T-B-L-E. I know it's like the startup way of spelling it, so it doesn't have all the vowels in the middle. <laughs> right? So it's like, hey, look, the domain was 12 bucks. You know? So, you know, you can't blame me for it. But, but, uh, but Equitable, you can find us at Equitable.com. Really, type in Equitable into Google. It's the same name across all our platforms, Twitter, LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn, Joseph Ifiegu. I'm sure that, you know, you all will have my my name and, and my last name there as well. So you can find find that. Um, but again, look, I'm always happy to chat. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn all day, every day. So if you ping me on LinkedIn, I always happy to respond. But you can also email me, Joseph at Equitable, really, as well. I'm always happy to talk about people analytics, HR, the future, or just food, really, right? Anything you want to talk about, <laughs> I'm happy to, to chat. So really appreciate the opportunity uh, and the platform as well. Thanks, Veronica. Thanks, Ben. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this valuable, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Please consider leaving us a rating or review. We'd really appreciate it. Work Everywhere is presented by Allware, the work enablement solution that provides everything you need to work from anywhere. Companies from startups to enterprises save on time and cost by trusting Allware with employee provisioning, procurement, logistics, and asset management. Learn more at allware.co.